What's going on, everybody? This is Black Men Sundays. I'm your host, Corey Sylvester Murray. This is a podcast about generational wealth, finance, and business. And without further ado, let's introduce today's guest. She's an educator. She's a realtor. She's a credit score enhancer out of Miami, Florida. Let's welcome Ruth Clinton to the show today. How you doing, Ruth? Doing very well, and thank you for such a wonderful introduction, Corey. With inflation, is it a good idea to buy a house right now, or should we wait till the fall? I would say it's definitely a good idea to buy a house right now. Yes, it is a strong seller's market. Yes, there is inflation going on. However, there is no guarantee that things are going to go down. I know a lot of people are expecting to see a crash like we did in 2007, 2008, but that's not a guarantee. Number one. Number two, I know that I uh, had some several several clients that I was working with last year who last year they were saying, oh, we're going to wait till things cool down a little bit. And it's only increased since last year. I think it's definitely now's a good time to buy or what I should say is there's a quote. It says, um, the best time to plant a tree is 10 years ago, or the best time to buy was 10 years ago. So there's no time like now, and there's no guarantee that in the future, things are going to go down as people are anticipating. And either way, uh, the property value always appreciates. Without being specific, because this is Black Men's Sundays, we want to know, you know, if I'm looking to purchase a home or just looking to purchase a property in general, what type of money do I need to put down? And also what type of money should I just have sitting in my account? The first thing I would like to say is when you're looking at purchasing a property, uh, you want to consider what type of uh, product you're going to use for your mortgage uh, or if you're going to use a mortgage at all. They say, as they say, cash is king or can be king. You want to, if you're not going to go the cash route and finance your, uh, your property that way, um, when you're looking at a mortgage, there are basically four different types of mortgages that you can look at. There are others, of course, but the main ones would be uh, FHA, conventional, and then there's uh, VA and USDA. So with an FHA or conventional loan, you're typically going to be putting down three to 5%. And then also you have within those loan types, uh, investors. Uh, so where if you're, if you're purchasing the property as your primary residence, then you would be putting three to 5% down. But depending on your lender, if you're purchasing the property as an investment property, you would either be needing to put 20 to 25% down. And then it can get even more uh, complicated there as far as, especially down here in South Florida, where you have a lot of HOAs, uh, homeowners associations, that's what HOA stands for, um, who don't have a lot of reserves. So even if it's a conventional or an FHA loan, you still have to put that 20 or 25% down. Uh, in addition to that, you would also need your closing costs and things like that. Any last minute things that come up, fees that the lender might have or uh, other fees that are associated with your inspection process and things like that. So I'd say, uh, let's say you're looking, whatever the price of the property you're looking at is, I would say 25% of that. And that should take care of you, especially if you're not, if you're looking to purchase it as a primary residence. Um, but you know. It depends. The more money you have saved up, the better. Uh, but again, it depends. And 25% would be great. But not to scare anyone away, you don't need 25% in order to purchase a home, especially if it's your primary residence. You can do as low as 3% down on the home. We see you're a credit score enhancer. A lot of Black men, you know, aside from going to the doctor, that's like a misnomer that's not talked about in our community. But we're going to talk about it on Black Men Sunday today. And we have a sister to talk about it. So we're doing it big. So let's talk about credit score because a lot of brothers say, okay, well, I have a 700 or, you know, there's brothers that are in the fives that need some help. So what credit yeah. tips would you give? Definitely. As far as enhancing your credit score, I would say the two biggest, your, your credit score is broken up into five different categories, right? And the two biggest ones are your payments and your utilization. So you want to make sure that you're paying all of your bills on time, especially the ones that do get reflected on your credit. So credit cards, if you have a mortgage already, you want to make sure you're paying that on time. Um, there are ways to add your rent to your credit, but if you don't already have that, paying on time doesn't necessarily benefit you. But when you pay late, it does negatively impact you if you have a savvy landlord. So want to make sure you're paying your bills on time. And then you also want to make sure you want to make sure that you're using 20% or less. So let's say you have one credit card and that credit card has a limit of $1,000. You want to make sure that you're using less than $200 at any given time. 
once you go above that 20% utilization, you start to get a negative impact on your score. So again, the two biggest factors impacting your credit score are your utilization and your payment history, like whether you make your payments on time. So you wanna make sure that you're taking care of those two things. You also wanna make sure you have um, a good variety of things. You don't wanna have 15 credit cards and no other kind of payment history. You wanna have also maybe a car loan or a mortgage, uh, maybe student loans, which those, uh, typically aren't good for most people because they're such they're such a high loan uh, that most people have. But if you are able to get a small student loan, that can also positively impact your credit score. Yeah. But again, utilization and history, two biggest sections. Like I said in the back end of my question, I was talking about a group of brothers buying a property together just to you know be able to get a higher end property, but be able to pull our money together. So my question to you is: Is it smart to pull the money together and pay cash for the property? Or is it better to pay the 30% down because it'll be an investment property? So I think it's it depends on your specific situation and what you need. I've heard many times over, it's always better to use other people's money. So if you can take your cash, if there's a way for you to leverage other people's money, i.e. in a, using a mortgage to finance the transaction, then by all means, you go ahead and do that. But if you are in a position where you do have the cash readily available, since it is an investment property and likely you'll be uh, having a return on that investment, then you want to go ahead and use the cash. Also, you want to take into account, you know, whether or not using your cash is now going to limit you from doing other things, or, you know, if that making that cash investment is worth it for you to use the cash at that time. All right, fellas, the stage is open. Let's go. Hello, Ruth. This is uh, Commissioner Scott. I got a couple of questions. Well, one question about credit scores. There seems to be so many different credit scores. You got FICO, 4 or 5, you got TransUnion, Experian, Equifax. And it seems like the FICO score sometimes is lower than the other three main credit bureaus. Could you explain the different credit scores out there? Which ones should we really be concerned with for the listeners out there that are trying to get their first mortgage? Thank you for that question, Commissioner Scott. So with credit scores, uh, so the, the three main bureaus that we most people tend to hear of a lot, Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion, the reason that your scores might vary with those is just a matter of whether or not somebody actually reported it to that bureau. So the credit bureaus don't know things automatically. Someone has to report it to them. So uh, you might see discrepancies there because of the reporting. As far as a FICO score is concerned, um, FICO scores tend to take tend to take into consideration the age of your credit as well. So whereas someone might have a 700 credit score, but you know they've only had a, they're 18 years old, so they've only had a credit score for maybe a couple of months because they just turned 18. The 750 credit score for someone who's 18 um, would be a little bit different from the 750 credit score for someone who's let's say in their 40s, just because of age. So their FICO score tends to look at the age as well. Um, not necessarily the age of the person, but the age of their credit. So um, that's one difference. And I keep learning about more and more credit scores, but more and more credit score systems. Um, so besides Experian, Equifax, TransUnion, and our FICO score, there are just many different um, ways to grade someone's credit. And the difference I would say between all of them is just what exactly it is that they're looking at you know, whether or not things have been reported to that particular bureau. As far as what you should pay, which one you should pay more attention to, I think, uh, if I remember your question correctly, it just depends on what you're looking for. So if you're looking to purchase a home, which would be the case uh, in real estate, um, you want to make sure that your FICO score is good so that when they see the length, your history, they see a lot of a good length of history with good reports, um, which is where you know, sometimes when people are wanting to boost their credit, they'll add an authorized user for the length of history that that, that person might have. Um, but if you're looking to maybe purchase a car or something like that, uh, I, as far as I remember, the most um, car dealerships tend to look at the TransUnion score. And then I think second in line is the Equifax score. But um, it just depends on what your purpose is in using your credit score. Are you using it to purchase a home or purchase a car? Or is it I know some jobs also look at your credit score, so depends on where you're using it to do. Okay, thanks. And that's definitely true about the jobs. I know when I interviewed with the federal government, that's the first thing they check and had some things <laughs> to clear up 10 years ago. 
thanks. I got one more quick question. Uh, some of the young people, or some of the young listeners, uh, sometimes, you know, their finances aren't where it should be. Sometimes they might make might miss a payment or two, right? Yeah. And I try, I try to explain the difference between a 30-day late payment on your credit and a 60 and a 90, right? Yeah. So someone, if someone misses a credit card payment, can they still make a payment if it's less than 30 days after the initial due date and not have it show up as a 30-day late payment? The short answer is yes. And there are some credit card companies who are sharks. And sometimes, also depending on your history, they might try to report it, you know, right away. So I would say it's a slippery slope uh, trying to going past the 30-day mark. But yes, in to sh short answer, yes, there are some t cases where you can avoid that, that late payment, even if it's after the 30 days. Okay, thanks. Hi, Corey. This is Carla. I have a question, if I may. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Carlo. Happy Black Man Sunday. So, Ruth, nice to meet you. I have a quick question around the home buying process. So, I have um, two young adults. We've had the conversations about your transitioning out of the home. I've always encouraged them to try and save and move out and purchase a home versus renting. What is your advice around that? Because I feel like that would be more of an investment for them. Yes. So definitely, uh, I would say that it is always a good idea to buy. Now, renting can has, have its benefits as well as far, you know, there's a long list of reasons why it's good to be a renter, you know, the flexibility of being able to move whenever you need to. Um, but there also are some limiting factors to being a renter, especially down here in South Florida. Um, so I would say it's always better to purchase, even if you, as a, someone who's a young person transitioning out of your home and you know, you're not sure if you're going to be in that city much longer, or there's just a whole bunch of different factors that you're not sure of when you own a property, you can Airbnb it out. You could sell it. And then most likely in most cases, you'll have a, a profit from having made that purchase and the options are endless. You can use it as an investment property for yourself outside of Airbnb. Whereas if you're a renter, once you've spent that money, that money has been spent. You got a place to stay, yes, but there's not very much you can do um, as far as helping to build wealth for yourself beyond that point. So if as a young person transitioning out of your home, you are in a position where you did save money and things like that, I would definitely say use it towards a down payment on a home, not towards your first last insecurity on a rental property. Um, and I know probably someone out there is going to say, well, you can also Airbnb your rental property which is true. Um, however, there can be a lot more red tape around Airbnb being a property that you're renting as opposed to Airbnb being a property that you own. Thank you for that. My pleasure. I got one more quick one if I could. Um, I was talking to a cat the other day and I was like, man, do you own a home or you renting or what? He was like, man, I got, I got a bankruptcy. There's no way I can get a house. Uh, do you have any advice on people that have bankruptcies on their chances of getting a, getting a house? Most definitely. So uh, I know there's like a lot of um, like bankruptcy tends to be very, it's like a scary, nobody wants to deal with it. And people have this mindset that once you have a bankruptcy, your life is kind of on hold for seven years. And that is definitely not the case. I know uh, after two years, you're able to get a mortgage again. And also depending on what type of bankruptcy you filed for, but I'm assuming, uh, you know, we're talking about a bankruptcy where you didn't have property involved in the bankruptcy. Once you're, if you didn't have property involved in the bankruptcy, after two years have passed, you are able to qualify for a mortgage again. Um, and then there are also lots of special uh, attorneys and mortgage lenders who specialize in dealing with people who have had bankruptcies in the past. So uh, bankruptcy is not, does not have to limit you as far as home purchasing, um, just a matter of time. Like obviously if you got a bankruptcy two weeks ago, you can't buy a house next month, but after two years, you don't have to wait the seven years that I grew up hearing was the amount of time you have to wait after a bankruptcy. For the credit score, a lot of brothers are thinking, because we've had a brother last week that mentioned when, you know, your credit score, your credit utilization is like 35%. So we know that now, but if our credit score is low, what advice would you give to improve that besides, you know, paying the bills and getting the utilization? Because obviously getting that is a challenge. Like if your card is full, getting that back down. So yeah. I would say, what advice would you give? It's kind of a two-part question. If your credit score is high and you're kind of struggling to lower that, what advice would you give for that? And then secondly, if your credit score is mid sixes, 
what do you need to do to get in, into the sevens if you don't have a credit card? Okay, so if your credit score is in the mid 600s and you wanna bring it up, uh, there are a couple of different programs that you can use to boost your credit score. Um, for example, there are a couple of companies, Experian is one of them, where you can uh, pay them a monthly fee. It's usually around like 10, maybe $15 a month. You pay them a fee to start reporting your, anything that you pay on time. So your phone bill, uh, car insurance, your rent, if you have rent, mortgage, if you pay a mortgage, um, pretty much any recurring bill like that that you have every month, you can pay that company um, to report it on your credit score each month as a positive. I know that there are some companies that even do as much as two years past reporting, which would give you around an average of 80 to 100 points of an increase in the next reporting cycle. Um, and then there are other companies that start on the day that whatever day that you apply with them, they start reporting. So, you know, over a couple of months, you would see an increase that way. Um, another way that you could increase your credit score if you're in the 600s looking to get jump up to the 700s is you could become an authorized user on someone's credit card. So there are some companies that offer that as a service. Um, you got to be careful, do your research to make sure that if you're paying for that service, that they are actually going to do what you intend for them to do. So for those, for anyone who might not be aware, so an authorized user is where someone else has a credit card. So let's say Corey has a credit card. I need my score boosted. So I say, hey, Corey, can you add me to your card? So Corey adds me to his card and everything that's on Corey's history gets added to my history. Now we wanna be careful when we do that because let's say Corey doesn't pay his credit cards on time. Yes, I got the positive of you know, whatever positives he has, but now I also have the negative. So you just wanna make sure that if you're, you are doing that authorized user thing uh, with a company, you do your research to make sure that they're doing it well. And you know, you're not adding unnecessary debt to your, to your score. And then also you can, you don't have to necessarily do it through a company. You could do it through a family member. I'm sure a lot of uh, us know maybe an older person who, you know, a grandma or an auntie or somebody who's older, we know that they don't use their credit cards, but they probably do have that great credit score. Um, you can explain to them, look, I would like to be added to your card, which um, might make them fearful at first, but you just let them know you don't have to actually get the card. As long as you're added to the card, their history goes on to you. So being an authorized user is another way to enhance your credit score. And then as far as I think you were mentioning having a high utilization and paying it down, um, there are def several different methods, um, but one of them is tackling your biggest credit card first. So whichever card, let's say you have five cards, three of them are at halfway utilization and one of them is maxed out. You want to target that maxed out one first. And let's say you, you're going to pay $100 a month. So you pay off $100 a month, $100 a month until that one's taken care of. And then you still allot that $100 to start paying off the next highest one. So you just keep, you set aside a certain amount of money that you're going to use to pay down your credit cards each month and start with the biggest one and keep working your way down until your debt is taken care of that way. So let's go back to the realtor side. We talked about credit. But now if, you know, I pull some money together with some brothers, what advice would you give on just some, you know, because, you know, when you're thinking about it, we're talking about generational wealth. You're like, okay, let's, let's put our money together. Let's buy a property. We're all excited to do it. But, you know, I've heard there can be some lulls or some issues that can come out of that. So I would just have you touch on some problems that can come on. Um, owning a home with multiple owners. First of all, that is a wonderful idea to own, to pull money together as a group of people and own a property together because owning a little bit of something is better than owning nothing of nothing. So awesome idea. Um, second thing I'll say is you want to make sure that you have the right contracts and, and, and legalities in place just because, you know, you might start off everybody's friends and everybody's happy, but then what happens if, you know, you all start off as five single guys and then somebody gets married and then the wife wants a part and like, you just got to make sure your contracts cover all the possible scenarios that could happen so that each person actually does leave the transaction with the intention of the intended outcome, which is to actually build wealth from it. You don't want to end up where, you know, everyone's like, okay, we're going to put it in my name, but yeah, you know, don't worry. I'll take care of you. No, we want to make sure it's taken care of written in written form. We have a contract and, you know, probably even put it in an LLC's name as opposed to 
one person's name and just make sure everybody's bases are covered that way legally. Hi Ruth, I have a question about the authorized user information that you were providing. So yes. with the authorized user, once that person, um, let's say just comes off, you know, you kind of met that purpose of helping them to increase their credit score and now you want them to come off as an authorized user, right? So yes. what happens to their credit score at that point? Do they lose that credit history? How does that work? Very good question. So yes, they would lose a credit history, especially as we were talking before about that FICO score. So whereas let's say, again, with the scenario of me and Corey, Corey has 14 years history and I only have five. Once Corey, once I'm no longer an unauthorized user on Corey's credit card, that 14 year history is no longer gonna be seen on my FICO score. Now, it also also depends on when things are happening because as we said before, some bureaus don't necessarily report the same things and then some report them at different times. So there might be still a window of time where I'm off of someone else's authorized user or I'm off of someone else's card as an authorized user, but I still for a period of time have their, their score or their, their positive history reflected on mine, which uh, actually brings me to also, it goes the same way for negative items, which is why... Um, it's important to pay attention to your credit score because sometimes credit bureaus also report obsolete information or outdated information. Whereas like, for example, let's say you've paid off a card, but before you paid it off, you had late payments on there or something like that. The bureaus might still be reporting that negative history, but they no longer should be reporting it because it's past that time window. So it goes both ways. For the positive, they can sometimes leave it on there for longer um, and then also for negatives. Hey, I got a quick one real quick. Um, when people are getting mortgages, right, and they get their credit, they do a hard pull for their credit versus a soft pull. Uh, a, could you explain the difference between a hard pull and a soft pull? And B, after you get that initial hard pull for your mortgage, uh, how many days do you have before you can get other mortgage hard pulls without affecting your credit? Great question, Commissioner Scott. So with uh, getting the difference between a hard pull and a soft pull would be a hard pull actually impacts your credit score. And then a soft pull typically does not impact your credit score. So a soft pull is typically looking at more like a kind of like a speculation of what's going on with your credit. Whereas a hard pull is actually looking at everything that's there. As far as not having other loan lenders see those hard pulls, I would say if you're able to do it the smaller the window of time is that you're able to get those different inquiries in, the better. So again, it depends on when things get reported. So for example, sometimes you can see things immediately, like uh, you might be sitting at the a lender's desk today and you get, like if you have the Credit Karma app or something like that, or Credit Sesame, you'll see right away oh, that there was a, an inquiry on your credit score but not everybody's systems are the same. So if you're going to uh, be shopping around for a mortgage, which I encourage you to do, you wanna make sure that you do it as close together as possible to lessen your chances. Now, it's not guaranteed that you won't um, see the, the hard inquiries from one lender to the other, but it lessens your chances the, the closer together you get those inquiries done. So when you have your young adults, would it be wise as a parent to also maybe co-sign the loan with them if they're needing more credit history and or just needing more, I don't know, income so that they can get more house, uh, better interest rate? Would you advise against that or should we consider that as a parent? Excellent question, Carlo. Thank you. So it's... Uh, depending, there are different programs with different lenders, right? So depending on your lender, having a parent co-sign with you can be a helpful thing. And in some cases, it cannot be a helpful thing. So with some lenders, if you have a parent co-signing with you who already owns a property, you're no longer going to be able to qualify as a first-time home buyer because of, you know, the parent who owns a property. So you're going to have to now see it as an investment property, in which case you, instead of putting the three to 5% down, you're automatically going to have to put 20 or 25% down on the property. So depending on if you, you know, have the funds to do that, it can be a negative for that, that child or, or that, um, the person that you're, yeah, your child who you're helping to purchase that property. But if the parent does not own a property and they're also looking at it, you know, as a, 
you know, some a legacy that they're leaving for that for that child, um, then you know you can still qualify for the first time home buyer and do three to five percent down. As far as beyond that, it can also you know that child being on the mortgage can also possibly depending on how things go, if this the child is not able to pay for the mortgage, things like that. Obviously, that would negatively impact now the parents, you as the parents, uh, you know, lending history and things like that. Ruth, I know we talk about personal credit scores a lot, but uh, what's the connection between your personal credit score if you're trying to build up business credit? And like, what's the importance of a Dunn's number too uh, for people to know about? Very, very good question. All right. So uh, your personal credit score and your business credit score initially are very close related uh, because if you're, especially if you're newly establishing a business, they, they don't have anything to base you off of or to judge your payment history off of other than your personal credit score. Um, so initially when you're starting a business, your personal credit score is very important for it to, to be in a good position as well. Cause that's what they're looking at. Now your Dunn's score, that is synonymous to your personal credit score, but except for a business, your Dunn score in a similar way, you can build it up just like you build up your personal credit score. And after some time and building that up, then you, uh, your business has its own credit um, or its own done score. Uh, and then you can use that um, for larger investments in your in your company. Okay, thanks. And for anyone listening, it's easy to get a Dunn's number. It takes about three minutes. It's free. Yeah. So if you got a business, go and get one. I do have one last question, Ruth. You are awesome. I wish I could have a private session with you. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Carlo. But I do have one question. I am so dedicated to my local credit union. There's some pros and cons to that because with the credit union, all members get the same interest rate. You know, so if I have a credit have a credit score of 850, I'll get the same rate as a person who has a credit score of 680, right? Mm -hmm. So when do you start to allow your credit score to drive your, I guess your borrowing process is where you go to the credit union, maybe for a credit card, but then if you're trying to get a lower interest rate to purchase a house, then maybe you go to Bank of America or you start looking at some other lenders. I'm just trying to figure out, you know, when do you let your credit um, be to your advantage versus me going, you know, to the credit union where it's always going to be that, you know, 4.75 or whatever, and I have an 850 credit score, somebody else has a 650 and they're going to get the same interest rate versus right. me going to Bank of America with my credit score, I might could get a 2.5 interest rate. So as far as um, credit unions, I actually have not heard that before, that credit unions lend this or they give you the same interest rate, no matter what your credit score is. So I'm definitely going to check out some credit unions nearby to see if uh, if that's true for all of them. Um, that's number North one, Carolina. We're North that, Carolina. North that's Carolina. North Carolina. <laughs> okay. Okay. Interesting. Okay. That's actually, it can be a pro and a con. Obviously a con in the situation that you're in where your credit score is higher and you, you know, you want to be able to benefit from that. Um, I know in a lot of cases, credit unions do tend to have lower interest rates on a whole. So even though they may not be giving you uh, or allowing you to use your great credit score to your advantage, on a whole, typically they tend to have less or lower interest rates. Um, if you do find a situation where they aren't, they don't have the lowest interest rate, then for sure I would say, yeah, go ahead and explore Bank of America or. And I know it wasn't exactly a question, but since we're on this topic, you should definitely, once you choose a lender that you feel comfortable with, stick with it, um, stick with them, I should say. But so when, before you choose a lender, you want to make sure that you shop around because different lenders offer different programs. Like you have uh, lenders who are able to offer down payment assistance or um, even recently with the Homes for Heroes program that was just released or here, in, actually here in South Florida, there was a a new program that was released called Homes for Heroes, not all lenders are able to work with that program. And, you know, there's just different uh, reasons why you might want to choose one lender over another. But I definitely would highly recommend that you, you know, shop around and then you just choose what's best for you. Maybe one lender does have lower interest rates, but they don't have a program that you need in order to purchase an investment property. Or maybe they do have the program for you 
term purchase an investment property, but another company or another lender has that same program and you know you can put less down. So always shop around when you're um, looking at mortgages. Thank you for that. And I think the second part to that for me is that with the credit union, they're only reporting to one, um, one bureau, right? So they're reporting to Equifax. Well, if you have this great credit history and you're paying your mortgage on time, and if you have a credit card with them, it's only reporting to Equifax. And then it causes a, it causes a fluctuation, right, in your credit mm -hmm. score when you're looking at TransUnion um, and when you're looking at that other bureau, Experian, right? right. Yeah. And so I think it's important that you diversify kind of some of the loans that you have or credit cards that you have. So you have that credit score kind of about the same throughout if that makes sense yeah 100 percent. Okay. all right so before we let you go ruth we got to get to know you a little bit you know like i said you're a music instructor realtor credit score enhancer i also did my own research i saw you're a zumba instructor too <laughs> yeah so one yeah so one thing you know as black men like i said this is wealth finance but i'm gonna add health to that intro because i feel like without health the wealth is going to get drained. So let's talk about let's talk about the health perspective. A lot of black men, I can't speak on sisters because my wife goes to the doctor. Thank <laughs> you, Jesus. But for the brothers out there that haven't been, I've, I've spoken to brothers, they haven't been to the doctor in 10 years. They're not working out. They're just working, coming home, chilling, going to sleep and doing the recycle, re-rinse and reuse. So you know, let's talk about health a little bit. You know, um, let's talk about getting to know you a little bit. You're an educator as well. So let's just talk about how you got into education, how you got into being a music instructor. And then let's talk about the health side of it. So yes, definitely health is very important. Uh, health on all levels. So your physical health, your mental health, your spiritual health, all of it is extremely important. Um, to answer your question about how I got into education, I come from a long line of educators. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a teacher. I'm sure my, I have two siblings and I'm sure both of them, well, my sister is a principal uh, and I'm sure my brother also did some sort of educating at some point in his life, uh, in his training, but he took a slightly different path um, from the rest of us, but I come from a long line of educators. And so in going to school, I just, education seemed like the right choice. I also do enjoy uh, teaching, sharing knowledge. Um, and I love seeing when that light bulb goes off light bulb goes off in someone's mind and they're like, oh, I get it now. Um, so education uh, has always been there in the background. And then as far as music is concerned, I, I sing, I play a couple of instruments. And I just, when I got to college, I thought that marrying those two, um, those two things would be wonderful. So my bachelor's and my master's are in music education. And I taught for about 12 years before I realized that I wanted to fully pursue the world of entrepreneurship. Um, so in becoming an entrepreneur, I started a credit repair company, which I no longer uh, work hands-on like that with credit repair, but started that. So I got some experience doing that. Um, I also got my Zumba instructor's license because I went, I was going to a lot of Zumba classes and then it was presented as an opportunity for you to have your own uh, classes and, um, you know, make income from that. So I loved participating in the classes. So I decided to get my license. And then I also got my life insurance license and my real estate license. And that was like my, my dive into the realm of entrepreneur, entrepreneurship. Let's talk about the health side a little bit, you know, uh, Zoom instructor. Why did you get involved with that? And let's just talk about health. Like I said, brothers, yeah. I know haven't been to the doctor in 10 years. Let's go. So I got into Zumba because it's, it's like a party every time. So you're working out and you're kind of like tricking yourself into working out because you're going, you're dancing, you're having fun. And then by the end of the class, you're like, oh, I was just moving for like an hour and a half in some cases. So that's how I got into Zumba. And I think health is just super important in the sense that, you know, we can talk about wanting to invest in real estate and different things like that. But like your health is your wealth, truly. Um, and in, it is great to build uh, wealth as far as our, you know, real estate and assets and things like that. But if you don't have good health to enjoy those things, then, you know, what do you have? So um, investing in your health is, I would say, equally as important as investing in financial uh, wealth and financial stability. And let's get back to the realtor side, the, the real estate side of things. So 
for the brothers out there that are have the money, but they're scared to take the plunge, what would you say? Just do it. Just do it. Um, you have the money. Maybe you know read a, read up a little bit, uh, or not a little bit, but you know do your research, your due diligence. But then just do it. You never, if you read a hundred books about knowing how to ride a bike, but until you get out there and ride a bike, you know, all you have is knowledge about how to ride a bike. So I'd say don't suffer from analysis paralysis when it comes to real estate, you know, just get out there, do it. Maybe start with something small, um, you know, and then take it from there. But if you've got the funds, go for it. Okay. And I kind of want to piggyback off, you know, I was doing a little research before the show and I was looking at your Instagram and you said first time home buyer avoid these mistakes. So if you don't mind if you can just, you know, touch base on that on the podcast. Okay, so yeah, we kind of actually touched on quite a bit of this already. So you want to make sure that you're keeping an eye on your credit score. Um, you know, as a first time home buyer, you don't want to just be doing crazy things. You don't want, you want to make sure you are not purchasing a car anytime near where you want to purchase a home. Um, not that it, it's impossible to be done, but you know, you're purchasing a car is now a debt that you have included in your debt to income ratio. So whereas let's say, even if you get a car that's $17,000, that's $17,000 less that you'll be approved for in purchasing your home. Uh, and I'm sure you want to have as much, uh, be qualified for as much as possible rather than as little as possible. So you want to also make sure that you're not looking at houses before you get pre-approved. I can't tell you how many times, especially down here in South Florida. So people, you know, they'll watch these shows and they'll be like, oh yeah, I want the house with the pool. And like, and then when they actually get pre-approved and see how much they're approved for and what that buys down here in South Florida, it can be devastating as opposed to waiting, seeing what you're approved for, and then looking at, okay, you know, I'm approved for 450,000. This is what I can get. It's a lot less um, devastating in that way, because on the, on the best case scenario, you're approved for more than you thought, and then, you know, you can actually maybe get something more in line with the, the dreams of what you've been seeing on TV or, you know, whatever you've been dreaming about. Um, but yeah, I definitely don't want to look at, start looking at homes before you get an approval. Cause you know, you could be looking at million dollar homes and, you know, they're going to have all these fancy trinkets. And then if you're not, it's going to be a more discouraging, disappointing, um, yeah, discouraging process. If you're if you're not connected with what you're actually approved for before uh, you start looking. Um, also, another mistake that sometimes first home, first time home buyers can make, especially if you go at it alone, uh, is they'll they'll skip the inspection period. They'll you know, let's say you get a, a home that looks brand new. I, this actually happens a lot with new construction homes, um, and then also homes that have been renovated. On the exterior, it might not look like anything's wrong, or you might think, oh, you know, it looks good, so you know, I can take care of it. Or especially down here where we have a lot of condos, you know, they're like, oh, the, you know, the HOA, the condo association, they're going to take care of the roof. I don't need to worry about the inspection, but sometimes there are things underneath the surface that you don't see uh, right away. Uh, and an, a professional, an inspector would be able to find that for you and definitely help you to avoid, you know, a costly um, investment. Okay. And I, I apologize for asking this question. But I, I hear this so much in the Black community, it's driving me nuts. So the fact that I have a realtor on here, I have to ask you this. I've heard so many people say they're in the underwriting process. They're pretty much almost in the house. But you know the underwriting process, how grueling that can be. I know it was a little challenge for me. But I've heard people say that the underwriting was going fine and they were so excited. They went and bought furniture for the whole house. And then after they messed up their credit utilization, they didn't get the house. So please touch on that for us. Please. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. So one of the, one of the hugest mistakes you can make before closing on a home or during the underwriting process is thinking, you know, counting your, your eggs before they hatch, you know? So you want to make sure you, all the rules, most lenders are going to give you a set of rules to follow before you you know, get to that point and your realtor should as well give you a set of rules to follow. Make sure you do not break those rules until you're actually on title on that home. You went through the closing process already. Don't make any major purchases before closing on a home. 
uh, like you just said, it goes towards utilization and it can really shoot you in the foot, um, so to speak. You know, even if you're right there, you know, you have an offer accepted, all of that, lenders have certain guidelines they have to follow and they they can't close if if they don't meet them. So do not make any major purchases, no matter what it is. How you doing, Rue? Hi, um, How you doing? Um, are you familiar with uh, Self Credit Builder? And do you think that's a good resource as far as building your credit? Yes. So I have heard of, I've heard of self-lender, if it's the same thing. Um, yeah. So self-lender. And then there's also not, I'm blanking right now on the name of it, but there's another type of card, um, a secured card, secured credit card, which is basically, you know, let's say you have $500, you can put it towards a secured credit card where you pay, it's your money, but you make monthly payment. You use it, you know, a little mm-hmm. bit at a time and then you make monthly payments on it. And so to answer your question, Art, definitely, I think that's a great idea um, to do self-lender. You do have to have a little bit of capital um, to do it. Like, for example, like I said, you know, the credit card is $500 or $1,000 mm-hmm. or whatever. You have to be able to have that money tied up for whatever amount of time that you're trying to build your credit. Um, I have seen people make a common mistake where they think, okay, you know, it's a secured credit card. It's my $500. So then they think, okay, I can use the whole $500, but the secured credit card works just like a regular credit card. So you maxing out that $500, even though it's your money. Um, now you have a utilization issue where you're at hundred percent utilization, even mm. though it's your money. You're at hundred percent utilization, which then is going to negatively impact your credit score. So definitely well, agree. I, um, I recently came across something that self offers where you pay like $10 to get it going. And mm-hmm. then you can choose how much you pay monthly. And it's like a 24 month program. You can opt into the secured car after three months, or you could just pay it for 24 months and they will send you a check or a direct deposit you all the money that you spent with them and they report it to all three bureaus every month yeah and then once you finish with that you can start it all over again i'm actually writing that down i haven't um i haven't it's heard it yet. it's self.inc inc self.inc okay you know or a lot of credit unions offer that same service too i know back home Corey, uh, langley federal credit union they do that when i was building my credit up i got 500 loans and it went to my savings account when I made the payments, paid it off, and did the same thing over and over and over again. Credit just built up. So that's another tip. I got one last question before I leave out. Uh, Ms. Ruth, so this is a real-life situation. Some of my students I deal with, they go to check their credit for the first time, and they find out they got bad credit because their mom or their dad got a cable bill or electricity bill in their name, and, you know, they got a four, they, only, they got a 300-something credit score, Right. What advice do you give to those uh, young people just starting off when they see their credit is already screwed up? Um, yeah. And how, how should they trust a, cre- a reputable uh, credit builder like uh, Art was saying? Like, because there are a lot of scams out here too. So, how, and this right. is, it's a, something they could do themselves, like simple things they could challenge yeah. the girls. Any tips on that? Yeah, 100%. So, first of all, I think that that is. It breaks my heart sometimes to think that a parent will, I know, you know, situations happen, but it breaks my heart to think that a parent would start their child off that way. Um, So I know your question is, what is my advice to those uh, students? But my advice to parents is don't use your children's credit like that unless you're going to actually help to build it for them. But that's another story. So um, advice for them. So credit repair is basically like doing your nails, right? In the sense that you can pay to get someone to do your nails and, you know, make sure that it's done the way that you want, um, or you can do your nails yourself. So you can repair your credit yourself. Um, there are a lot of different um, YouTube videos that you can look at. Uh, there's you know websites that you can go and get free templates for dispute letters and things like that. It just depends on how much time you have to dedicate to actually learning um, what to do, because also the credit, the credit bureaus are constantly updating different laws and things like that. So whereas what might've worked uh, two years ago, it might not necessarily work today. So um, yeah, you can definitely challenge, dispute things for yourself, especially in the kid, the, the case for those students who maybe had their parents do things in their name. I would say I would have them challenge it as not their debt or not their, you know, not theirs, because technically it was their parents, especially if their parents 
did it without them, their knowledge, um, it's not their debt really. Um, so they can challenge it and, or dispute it with the credit bureaus and have it um, come off of their credit score like that. Um, and then as far as you, you mentioned with like, um, you know, reputable credit repair companies and there being uh, different scammers out there, unfortunately in the credit repair world, I'm, it's, it is rampant. Um, and I would just say, you know, maybe do your research there as well. You make sure you, you've seen success with the person. I actually have started coming into contact with a few credit repair uh, companies that actually repair your credit for free. They just ask you to pay for the credit monitoring system. So that's something um, that maybe instead of, you know, having to be concerned with paying a large sum of money and then not getting what you asked for, just paying for a credit monitoring system and then having your credit repaired for free. And then also going at it on your own, trying, trying to learn uh, as much as you can so that you can do as much as you can for yourself. Okay, thanks. Hey, this is, uh, this is Kalali. I got, I got one question for you. Just delving into that issue of like parents trying to help their young children with credit. So like I was, I was actually online one time and I saw somebody as financial advice giving advice to people, to parents in terms of like adding their children to their own credit, um, credit cards as authorized users. So this person was saying, hey, I have a credit card and I have my young child, you know, I'm sorry, you know, I'm talking about young children, like, you know, six, seven years of years of age as authorized users on my card so that as I, you know, use my credit card, then their credit also builds as well. And I was kind of skeptical of that because I was like, well, you can't predict what's going to happen over the next 10, 15 years in terms of like, you know, what might happen with your life. So if your credit, if you don't, if your credit isn't necessarily handled the best way because of whatever situations in life happens, that history is also going to go to your children in terms of their credit, credit, um, credit history. So I was just wondering, how do you advise people? What do you think about that? Do you think that that's something that people should be doing in terms yeah. of trying to add their children on early? to build their credit or should they hold off and maybe teach their children more about how to manage credit? What do you think about that? Great question, Kaladi. I actually do think that is a great idea to add your, your children as an authorized credit user on your card. And you just, if you're doing that, if someone's doing it, I think they're probably, you know, their intention is to um, benefit their child. And so I would hope uh, that they can maybe, at least with one card, maybe you don't have to add them to all of your cards, but if you're going to add them to that one particular card, make sure that with that card, you make sure you, you know, keep your credit score or keep the utilization good and keep everything um, going well. The benefits of adding your children, I think you probably have already heard this if you, um, if you were sitting in on something like that, but you know, once your child turns 18, rather than now having to wait to build their credit history, they can start uh, investing in ways that they wouldn't be able to as a fresh uh, 18 year old. So there are definitely pros to adding your children as authorized users on your credit cards. But if that particular parent or if a particular parent is not going to be responsible and, you know, I know you said also like, you know, things in life can happen, but you know, you can, if you see that life is going in a direction where your credit is not going to be great, and it's no longer going to benefit your child you can also remove them as an authorized user to shield them from uh, getting that negative impact. So I'd say overall, it's a good idea to add your children. It gives them a, a leg up. Cool. Plus, yeah. Plus the, the, the idea of, you know, you can actually manage it and take them off if you're going to do something, which, you know, is probably going to be detrimental. To right. in the long run. I, I don't know. For me, I was just skeptical of it because I get, but I was also comparing it to my own personal experience in which I didn't actually need, like I never actually, I never even actually had a credit card until I was like in my early twenties. And that was just actually, cause a bank came to me. It was like, do you know what your credit looks like right now? Like we'll give you a credit card right now. So they just, they just like gave me what they were like, like literally, like I didn't even have to apply. They were just like, yeah. They were just like, yeah, if you say you want a credit card, we'll give you one. And that that's how I basically got my first credit card. And I never really had to. So it's, I, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I'm always interested in like how, how people are, you know, utilizing credit to like kind of help their children and different things like that. Mm, I love that, Kalali. Any lasting questions before we wrap this up? Well, I, I well, I'll follow up on that. We'll flip up. Let's flip over to the other side. You said you was a, a real estate agent as well, right? So you know, um, I'm kind of interested in, in, in perhaps pursuing 
uh, being, being a real estate agent just as just as like kind of like a second thing that I'm doing on the side. So um, how I don't know if you covered this before, but how did you actually get into being a real estate agent? Is it a difficult thing to do? What do you think about, you know, the whole grind of being a real estate agent? Great question, Kalali. The way I got into real estate or being a re real estate, a realtor, sorry, uh, was that I wanted to be an investor. So I felt like being a realtor would help me understand the realm of investing a lot more than I did not uh, being a realtor, um, which in some ways is true, like especially as far as like maybe writing contracts and things like that or understanding the market. Um, but you do not necessarily need to be a realtor in order to be a real estate investor. So there's that. Uh, and then also as far as becoming a realtor, I wouldn't say it's very difficult. I mean, you don't have to go to university and you know spend years learning. You just have to take the, the pre-licensing course. Then you take your state licensing exam, at least here in South Florida or in Florida, you take your pre-licensing course, then you take your state exam and then you have your post-licensing exam. And then you just do your continuing education every two years and you can keep your license. So it's not on a whole, like in order to become a realtor and get that designation is not necessarily difficult, but you know, being a realtor, like any job would have its challenges. You know, you have to, there's different things you have to learn, marketing, customer relations, handling, you know, the whole realm of all the things that can happen uh, as being a realtor. So I'm not gonna say it's super easy. It's not like, you know, extremely challenging. So if you wanna be a realtor, I say go for it. Sounds good. Sounds good. I might be joining you in being a realtor. So we'll see. Sounds awesome. Well, thank you, Ruth, for joining us on Black Men's Sundays. Like I tell all of our guests, you could have been anywhere in the world, but you're here with us. And I appreciate you for spending your time because this podcast goes beyond the United States. We're heavy in the UK. We're heavy in the Philippines. And recently, Germany's joined on. So I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for coming to Black Men's Sundays and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much for having me, Corey, and happy Black Men Sundays, everyone. Check it.